0: talking books on new 106 to 108
1: to, to write about my parents was for me to come up against the hard facts all the time and and to know that I could not exceed those hard facts. I could suppositionally or provisionally, and with, with that flag of supposition always flying, speculate about something, speculate about what they might have thought, what they might have been experiencing. Whereas in a piece of fiction, there's a kind of a plushness to a piece of fiction. Everything gives. Nothing is fixed. There's a line of Henry Moore's in which he says, never think of a surface but as the extension of a volume. And for me, writing fiction, as I think is true of Moore, who made hard sculptures, he he saw everything as mutable. Everything had a give to it, had something behind it rather than just the starkness of fact. So those were the those were the principal differences, but I didn't find them to be um, in- inhibiting at all. And in fact, I found it comforting to be able to stick to the facts of my parents' lives because what I wanted to do was to make the truth of my parents' lives through my writing available to the reader.
2: Entering the past is a precarious business since the past drives but always half fails to make us who we are. The insightful and straight up words of American novelist, short story writer and teacher Richard Ford from his moving new memoir, Between Them, Remembering My Parents, published by Bloomsbury. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. How well do we know our parents? Do we ever get the full story? And is love presence enough? Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're going to impact those questions with one of the greatest American novelists of our time, Richard Ford, known to most through his forceful, witty and entertaining reads such as the sports writer, Independence Day, The Lay of the Land, Canada, and let me be frank with you. In between them, Richard Ford writes, an only child absorbs a great deal, possibly if his parents are older. I have always said and still believe my childhood was a blissful one but that is not to say that life was normal life wasn't calm Well in late May at this year's International Literature Festival Dublin I reached out to Richard
1: Hello my name is Richard Ford I'm a novelist and a story writer and an essayist and I've written a memoir for Bloomsbury in the UK called Between Them and I think I'll read a bit of this to you um, from the memoir that is about my father, which is called Gone, Remembering My Father. On a Friday night, he came home as usual. It always seemed like he came from Louisiana. There was the usual elation in our new house, bright lights, some drinking in the kitchen, laughing, his jokes, rehearsing the week that it ended. My mother made beef stroganoff, a new dish. Nothing was out of the ordinary. I watched Rawhide on TV. They went into her bedroom and closed the door. At some point later, he went to bed, and then I watched television until midnight, and then I went to sleep. At 6, I was awakened by my mother saying my father's name, Carol, which is what she called him. Wake up, Carol. Wake up. What's the matter? Wake up. Then more loudly, wake up. I got out of bed in my pajamas, went into the hall and to the door of the next room, which was his. My mother was leaning forward beside his bed over him. My father was gasping for air in his bed. His eyes were closed. He wasn't moving except for the gasps. He looked. His skin did gray. Wake up, my mother said insistently, but different from that. Carol, wake up. She held his shoulders, put her face close to his, and shook him but he did not move. Richard, what's wrong with him, she said. She looked around at me. She was about to cry and was becoming panicked. She was on the verge of something bad. It was February 20th, 1960, four days after my birthday. I don't know if I said, I don't know, to her question, but I came forward, got up onto the bed where he was, and took both my father's shoulders in my hands and shook him very hard, not as hard as I could, but hard. I said his name, Daddy, several times. He took a deep breath in and let it out strenuously in a way that made his lips flutter, as if he was trying to breathe, though I think he was dead. With my two hands, I turned his face upward, used my thumbs to pry his loose, fleshy mouth and teeth open, and I put my mouth over his and breathed down into him, into his mouth and throat, and, I imagined, into his chest. I didn't know how to do this, or if it made sense. I'd only heard about people doing it. But I did it several times, possibly ten, and the result of my efforts to breathe for him or to bring my breath to him and wake him up and be alive was nothing. He did not breathe again or utter another sound. After some time on my knees on his bed with him, when I must have begun to conceive the thought that he was dead, I got down and turned to my mother, who had by then backed into the open doorway and put her fists to her temples, watching all that was going on in front of her. I don't know that I said anything to her. I may have stifled some deep sound in myself, but my mother said, Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. Which is when I went past her as she was saying this, and down the hallway to call the doctor. His house was not far from ours. Such things, the doctor coming, were more usual then than they are today.
2: Really well done on Between Them, Richard. It's an astounding read. It's uh, both powerful and very simply put, and it raises so many different questions um, I think lots of different readers will engage with it in, in lots of different ways. They'll think about their parents, their family, their responsibilities and how they understand it all and also their memories. I might start off with a big wide open question mm. for you, if that's OK. What makes for a good life? I know that somewhere in, in the memoir you write, it mostly only matters what we do. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, how do you understand a good life?
1: Well, I understand a good life as being and I'm talking, you know, not generally, but typical of a novelist specifically as a good life in which you love someone and someone loves you. And a good life is where you do as little harm as possible. And a good life is one in which you don't miss the days that you're living.
2: Your parents were uh, had a very close marriage and um, how you describe them, they're very distinct identities and were very different types of people in one way. But they clearly were very much in love. You described their lives as not very much remarkable. There was no big events, but they had true love.
1: Yes, they did. I think when my parents met each other in, um, well, let's see, 1927, I suspect, not quite sure when it was, 27, 28. Then my mother had had a kind of rough and tumble life in Northwest Arkansas, had been bounced into school and out of school, was suffering the jealousy of her own mother, who was only 14 years older than she was, and suffering, I think, the unwanted attentions of her stepfather. And my father um, had had, uh, not a bad life, except that it About age, uh, well, 1916, however old he was, nine years old, um, his father had taken poison and committed suicide. So you could say that for young kids, they they had had an other-than-usual upbringing, and I think that what happened was they laid eyes on each other, and they each just breathed an immense sigh. They thought, ah, now, finally, here's something good.
2: So they found refuge with each other, so to speak.
1: Was that it? I think I think refuge was part of it. But they they were both bodily people, my mother and father. So they probably had some fairly furious physical attraction too, because my mother was very pretty, and my father was, was was not a, an immensely handsome man, but he was a handsome man, um, and so I I, I think they fell into each other in all of the ways they could.
2: Can you describe Jackson of the mid-1940s for me, Richard?
1: Well, Jackson, Mississippi is first and, I guess, foremost the capital of Mississippi and is situated more or less right in the geographic middle. It was a town that had been burned to the ground in the Civil War, which had been 80 years before. It doesn't seem like very long, 80 years now, because it's been almost that long since, Um it, as I say, was the capital. It was the seat of government. It was bigoted. It was racially divided. It was uh, churchy. It was hypocritical. For black people, it was violent and subordinating. For white people, it was also subordinating for the lower classes, uh, lower economic classes. It was hierarchical. It was all of the things I came to dislike about the way people make a civilization. <laughs>
2: And did you talk to your parents about that? Did no. you did it come up at dinner time conversations?
1: Gosh, I wish it had, Susan. Mm-hmm. I uh, it had uh, So many things that were passing in front of us because they were from Arkansas, and had moved to, to Mississippi. But just when I was about to be born, they they didn't feel any sense of ballast or affiliation mm-hmm. in Mississippi either. And I think they saw things going on around them didn't take part in much of it and didn't discuss any of it with me. I mean, I I remember particularly the 1955, uh, which was the year that we moved out of the middle of Jackson and into the suburbs, was the year that Emmett Till famously was murdered and thrown into the Tallahatchie River uh, up in the delta of Mississippi. And I don't remember anybody in my family even mentioning that. But I mean, it was in the newspapers. It was everywhere.
2: So that kind of segregated atmosphere was the normal, so to speak, was it?
1: Yes. Ra- racial segregation was certainly the normal, although 1955, again, was also the year of the landmark Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case in which schools were begun to be desegregated in the South and all across the country.
2: Your dad sold um, laundry starch and went around a couple of the different states. Um, He must have saw a lot as he was traveling around because he was gone Monday to Friday. I know your mum joined him pretty much until you were born. And then um, when you were a young child, you went around as well. But I can imagine they must have seen some very messy stuff while being on the road.
1: Well, I don't know what those things would be and then for you to ask that question is I I think perfectly reasonable. I just don't know what those things were that they saw. I mean, um I mean racial violence was something you typically saw in Mississippi and in Louisiana and Arkansas, South Arkansas particularly. I'm sure he witnessed some of that in in some places, but typical of him, he never came back and related any of that to me. He probably came back and talked to my mother about it, but my parents, by and large, and I can't say they were usual of the time, they just didn't talk to me about things like that. I think they thought it would trouble me if I knew about those things, and in fact, uh, um, kept as much of controversy, kept as much of politics, kept as much of sexual politics and cultural events out of my life as possible.
2: When you you began writing the memoir um, over 30 years ago when your mum died and then it was only in the last year that you uh, wrote your father's section. Did you feel very self-conscious writing a memoir? You've wrote so, so many successful novels, but this is something very different because you've just stick to the facts.
1: No, I didn't feel self-conscious about it, but I'm not given to feel self-conscious yeah. about about that. I mean, you, you you know from the beginning that you are writing something for others to read. So the, the ultimate exposure that you put yourself through is part of the understanding. So it seemed to, to me, as different as its reliances are, memoir relies on fact novels rely on artifice and fiction uh, and fictive devices Um, it didn't really feel any different to be writing one thing or the other so I didn't feel any different about my own practices and my own protocols than I did um, writing writing a novel or a short story
2: presumably though the questions that you were asking yourself 30 years ago right after your mother died to uh, the questions you were asking yourself in the last year or two had any of them changed Because you're bringing, you know, you're moving on through life, different experiences, you're settling into yourself in different ways. And as we, you know, when you've lost parents, what you think five years on to what you think 10 years on are further, sometimes can be quite different.
1: Well, I don't know that they were different, but I but I certainly did ask them when my mother died. um, She died in 1981. And I wrote this this piece about her in 1985 or so. Her memory was fresh. I could hear her voice in my ears. I had, you know, instant access to a great deal that she and I had experienced together. When I got around after 30 years of preparation to writing about my father, there were definitely a number of a number of things that I asked about myself and about him together that I would never have asked. I would have taken them as implicit, I suppose. I would never have asked if I hadn't been writing this. And in chief among them is, how did you feel about your father? Mm. How did you feel about his absences? Uh, how do you think he felt about you? Because he always said to me, I love you. He called me son. He, said, I, I, he always said I loved you. But I had to kind of go in and ask myself, how can I now in the process of writing this memoir impart that to the reader in a way that doesn't seem just conventional that 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 seems to have a that 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 seems to have a quotient of truth in it different from the usual Mm -hmm. because i did think that the way my father took me in as a part of his life was was unique for children because all those years they hadn't had children and then about the time that they did have a child his, his work life changed so that he couldn't travel with my mother anymore. She had to stay home and take care of me. So, so I, I really did ask, what does it mean to be a father who's on the road all the time, who has a brand new kid and likely the only kid he's going to have? How does he feel about that child? And I, in a suppositional way, posed those kinds of questions. Whereas with my mother, because my mother was verbal, volatile, expressive, she would always let you know how she felt about you.
2: Do you think you're more like your mother?
1: You know, I think I'm a perfect carbon copy of both of them. I I am the the zygote in my case, you know, doesn't lie. I can look at pictures of myself from one angle or another and who I see is one or the other Mm. of them.
2: Your dad, by the time he hit his mid forties, um, his health began to really deteriorate, and he had a heart attack. Yes. And then, uh, as I was progressing through um the chapters about your dad, it became very, very clear that he really struggled and that um daily life was was very, very hard for him and he'd quite a disciplined schedule and um he was on the road a lot. So I'm just wondering, do you think he felt very stifled within himself because of his health and do you think he was very conscious of the fact that the game possibly was was up for him?
1: Yes. I, I, I do think he experience. Stifle mud is probably a, a good word for him because he had been buoyant in his young life and he had seen life as being full of opportunity. And I think when he had a heart attack, it, it shocked him. It clearly shocked my mother and, and he could see that shock in her demeanor and in her behavior. And I'm sure that the doctors told him some things about his life span, how long he might be alive that distressed him. And he, he he had what he had a what we call a, a mitral valve problem. At the time, it was called a heart murmur, and um, not, if he had lived five more years, he would have probably been able surgically to live a lot longer than he did. But I think someone told him, Carol, you're gonna, you're you're not gonna live out your you know three score and twenty, so uh, or four score and twenty or whatever the hell it is, you're not gonna get to be seventy years old.
2: But it must have been very, very difficult for him with such a demanding job, being on the road, yeah. living between hotels and then, do you know what I mean, having to be the man of the house uh, and so on. Do you, you know, w- w- when you look back at it now, you must feel huge compassion for him, do you?
1: I do. I do. Someone said to me at a reading last night, um, you, you were kind of hard on your father in your in your essay. And I said, baloney, it was not hard on my father. Because my father was never hard on me. He was, if anything, more gentle toward me than was my mother, as whom, as I said before, was volatile and noisy. Um, yeah, I feel a huge compassion for him uh, to have a son um, and in a way not be able fully to in, you know, engage the son in all the ways he would have liked to because he had to go to work, mm-hmm. be- uh, because he didn't feel good, I, I, yeah, it makes me sympathize with him.
2: It struck me as I was reading through the memoir that in a lot of ways, no matter if we have our parents around us for our whole lives or not, that they're always going to be a mystery to us. They are. We can know about their grandparents, where their grandparents grew up, their school. We can know lots of different things, maybe about their first boyfriends or girlfriends and all that type of stuff. But do we really ever fully know our parents and should we?
1: Well, no, we shouldn't. I think it's quite respectful of our parents to concede Mm. that we don't know them to the fullest. We don't know them to the fullest of their lives, surely. We probably don't even know them to the fullest of our own abilities Mm. to understand other people. I mean, I, I, I suspect even though my wife is, after these 50 years, is somewhat still a mystery to me, thank goodness. Uh, I think my parents, whom I knew at very formative parts of my life, remain an immense mystery to me. Even though I've written a memoir about both of them, even though I love them, I have, have had a trove of memories about them to draw upon, sure, we, we, we don't know them uh, as well as we would like to know them.
2: The title of uh, the memoir between them, it's very provocative and it got me thinking that should parents put their children before their relationship or not? Is that necessarily a good thing? Well, in your case, you were an only child. So, you know, there's, you know, it's us and them to a degree. But, you know, some children will feel that their parents' marriage comes first and the children are second and other children will clearly feel that they became before their parents' marriage.
1: One of the things about being a good novelist is that you take the word should and put it out of your vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) You say what you mostly are talking about is what people do and what then are the consequences of what people do. And a reader can draw her or his own shoulds out of that. I I don't know what other parents should do. I just know that my parents, and this is one of the discoveries, Mm -hmm. I suppose you'd say, of writing this book, uh, my parents' lives, the love that they had for each other, which so long preceded their love for me, always stayed most important, which is why I call this book Between Them. What was between my parents was paramount. What they managed to share with me was that love. Mm-hmm. And and even though I may be third in the little troika that we were, it was plenty, believe me. In fact, I spent a good deal of my time as an only child trying to elude a great deal of their attention as much as I could, because I was uh, I was transgressive by nature. And if I could stay out of my parents' line of sight, if I could not be exactly between them, I was happier.
2: When you say you're transgressive by nature, I'm just wondering, within all of that, how does that impact on how you go about writing fiction or non-fiction? Because, presumably, it changes the goalposts to a degree.
1: Well, I mean... I think it probably helps being a novelist because one of the experiences of being a, a writer all of these years is that I'm constantly trying to elbow the restraints to mm. el- elbow out the walls that I feel like I work in and in order to do that you have to you have to imagine the opposite of what sometimes your instinct tells you. You have to imagine the opposite of conventional wisdom, the, of normal mores. And to be transgressive helps. It, it helps me do that, I think.
2: But you believe in conventional wisdom. Do you think like a, it's ha- but you. Of course, you, I have to. But do you think it's helpful, though?
1: well I mean, it's a most, different
2: that's um, a different question
1: let's just call it a dynamic tension between what's what's right and what you want to do, and so that that's been my issue all my life yeah
2: so when you were um going through your notes for between them and uh, there, as we said there was a thirty year gap I'm just wondering, did you feel then um a greater degree of responsibility or did you feel um, tighter in a straight racket, that you um, had to stick to the facts, that you had to be true to what your memories were, however patchy they would have been or not?
1: It was not an unpleasant sensation, but it was a starker sensation, mm. f- starker than writing fiction. I can put it in, in sort of um, sensuous terms. T- to write about my parents' was for me to come up against the hard facts all the time. and and to know that I could not exceed those hard facts. I could suppositionally or provisionally, and with with that flag of supposition always flying, speculate about something, speculate about what they might have thought, what they might have been experiencing. Whereas in a piece of fiction, there's a kind of a plushness to a piece of fiction. Everything gives. Nothing is fixed. There's a line of Henry Moore's in which he says, never think of a surface but as the extension of a volume. And for me, writing fiction, as I think is true of Moore, who made scu- hard sculptures, he-, he saw everything as mutable. Everything had a give to it, had something behind it, rather than just the starkness of fact. So those were the, those were the principal differences. And, but I didn't find them to be um, in- inhibiting at all. And in fact, I found it comforting mm-hmm. to be able to stick to the facts of my parents' lives because what I wanted to do was to make the truth of my parents' lives through my writing available to the reader.
2: Did you ever question your memory? So I know that when I think about my own dad's death and it was something recently that my mum um we were discussing an aspect of when my father was dying and she she remembered something very differently to how I remembered it. So we can all have um, and I was quite adamant that I had the facts right. And she was quite adamant that she had the facts right. So I'm just wondering, do you know what I mean? Did you question your memories in any way or did you consult maybe Cousins or any other living relatives who would have.
1: I did, but there weren't any, there were only two living Mm -hmm. relatives who knew both my Mm -hmm. parents by the time I got around to writing about my father. There were many more when I Mm -hmm. wrote about my mother. But do I question my memory? Well, I'll tell you this, Susan, I've been married 50 years. So, if you're married to another person for fifty years, you often find that you have a different view of the same facts. That happens; it comes up almost every day. So, I've, I'm accustomed to that, I'm, I'm, which means I'm I'm accustomed to someone saying to me, "You know, what you think is true is not true," and it's my nature, just as an as a, as a writer, to be oppositional. So that if I think I remember something, if I think I'm right about something, I will almost reflexively ask myself if i wasn't wrong about it if i if i'm just making it up so so it, it's my nature to question my memory but it is also ultimately my call so yeah. i had to say if i had done that questioning and i decided this is what happened like the passage i just yeah. read about my father dying that's what happened yeah.
2: That's an interesting way to put it i 'm wondering, um your wife Christina, she knew your mum uh for um fifteen to twenty years, and um your mum from time to time used to stay with you, and certainly, as she got closer to her own death, she stayed with you for uh quite a uh, long periods so i 'm just wondering, did she remember anything differently to you in that sense
1: she didn't remember anything differently that i that that she ever told me, I and mean, she, as you say, was around quite a lot. The one thing that she wanted to um, be certain I understood was that after my mother had discovered a a lump in her breast, which ultimately was diagnosed as cancer, she waited a year before she sought help. And one of the ways in which she sought help was to tell Christina that she had had this lump in her breast and then to say to Christina, don't tell Richard about that. I don't want to worry him. I was writing a book. And the first thing she did naturally, and God love her, was to tell me. And so then we got my mother into hospital after that. Um, and my, but Christina wanted to be very clear that that was the that was the circuitry of that information, in case I remembered my mother as sitting down and telling me herself, which I'm capable of, you know, rem, so to say, remembering. But no, she said, look, this is how this happened. In case your memory is a little fuzzy about that.
2: You write in the memoir that no one can lose one parent and not live out his life waiting for another one to drop dead or begin to die. Right. You were living apart, obviously, from your mum. You moved from when you went to university. Were you very conscious of that?
1: Yes, all the time. And, Her life for that reason was, was pressurised for me. And then when she got sick in 1974, that made it all the more acute. Mm-hmm. Yes, but yes, I was. But, you know, being the child of older parents as I was, as I said before, my parents were married 15 years before I was born. Um, What what was typical of my very young life was all the old aunties and grannies and uncles, the old Irish people, Mm -hmm. kicking off all the time. We we would constantly be getting in the car and driving up from Mississippi to Arkansas to bury another one of them, you know. (laughs) Uncle William, Aunt Lizzie, all of them gone. So from my early years, and you know, I think this is much Mm -hmm. more typical of the 19th century than it is the 20th and even the 21st, in which we sort of scandalously outlawed death. Mm -hmm. We go on murdering millions of people, but the the, the domestic deaths in our life, Mm -hmm. we like to sort of hygienically cleanse out of our life. But that was not the case for me. But we... We experience death in the family and in households. And, you know, Walter Benjamin said when he was writing his wonderful essay, The Storyteller, he said, you know, history has it that almost any room of any house had someone die in it. That was Mm -hmm. typical of of Western civilization, Eastern civilization too, of course. Um, So it was more typical then than it is now.
2: I'm just wondering, you would reach a certain degree of success by the time your mum was dying. You must in some, of some felt at some stage guilt. We all feel guilt with our parents that we're not loving them enough, not caring for them enough, not um, being with them enough because you become when you lose a parent, as you say, you become very con- conscious of time with another parent.
1: I'm not a Catholic. Guilt is not in my vocabulary. I don't have any of it.
2: So was that something to do with your upbringing, was it?
1: Yes. My mother said to me, she said, because she, at a certain point, um, took care of her mother. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like each other. Yeah. They never liked each other. And she said to me at a certain point, after my grandmother had died, she said, when I get sick and I'm declining, she said, don't you take care of me. She said, I did it with my mother. She said, it's a bad thing and I don't want you to do it. So mm-hmm. in the last year mm-hmm. when she was dying, I didn't take care of her. Did I feel some regret that I didn't see her more? Did I feel some sense of responsibility that I wasn't shouldering? Yes, but I wouldn't call it guilt. I did it knowingly. I did it both at her instigation and at my, um, you know my agreement with her instigations I just did it and lived with the consequences
2: your granny was very jealous of your mother and as you said there was I think your granny had your mum when she was 14 yes she did and um, your mum was particularly good looking and she your granny had got married again and um, you allude to the fact that your grandfather was somewhat, your step grandfather was somewhat troublesome. He was a larger than life um, character. He seemed to have been a bit of a, uh, a, a
0: Jack Rue.
1: the Lad. A roué
2: is uh, what he was. A roué. Did that trouble you as a teenager?
1: Troubled my mother mm-hmm. in my presence. Mm-hmm. But I was so enamored of my grandfather mm. as the Rouet, as the boulevardier, as the sort of roustabout former prize fighter and lover of women and sportsman. There wasn't much at that point that was going to penetrate my brain to make me not like him. I was crazy about yeah.
2: it. You, you worked in his hotel, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did. I did everything in the hotel.
2: Do you think working in a hotel opens up your imagination? I worked as a chambermaid 20 uh, something years ago saw a lot of interesting scenarios of course you did
1: So <laughs> a lot of things that people did which they didn't want other people to see Yeah. I thought that was interesting uh, again you know that sense that never think of a surface as uh, except the extension of a volume you, those closed doors in that hotel as, as you are saying um, held a lot of mysteries held, and held a lot of things that weren't mysterious at all
0: Well, you're my friend And can you see Many times We've been out drinking Many times we shared our thoughts But did you ever, ever notice The kind of thoughts I got Well, you know I have a love A love for everyone I know And you know I have a drive To live I won't let go But well, can you see Its opposition Comes rising up sometimes That it's dreadful And position comes blacking in my mind And that I see your darkness 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 darkness. Did you know how much I love you? Is a hope that somehow you can save me From this darkness Well, I hope that someday, buddy We have peace in our lives Together or apart Alone or with our wives And we can stop our whoring And pull the smiles inside and light it up forever And never go to sleep My best unbeaten brother This isn't all I see Oh I see a darkness All I see a darkness Darkness. Did you, you know, know how, how much I, I love you? Here's a hope, hope that somehow you can save me from save me this darkness. Talking Books on New Song 106 to 108.
2: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Carl. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight on Talking Books, I'm chatting with American novelist, short story writer, and essayist Richard Ford about his latest memoir, Between Them, Remembering My Parents, published by Bloomsbury, where Richard writes, to write a memoir and to consider the importance of another human being is to try to credit what might otherwise go unremarked, partly by acknowledging that mysteries lie within us all and by identifying with those mysteries' virtues. Richard goes on to ask, does one ever have a relationship with one's mother? I think not. We, my mother and I, were never bound together by much that was typical. I asked Richard about his childhood memories of Jackson, Mississippi, and what questions or gaps he could not resolve.
1: Only factual questions. Yeah. Um, I think I got to the heart of the thing I was seeking. Uh, there were, as we talked about earlier, plenty of things that happened that they said that Maybe I've forgotten, or that I never knew about. But I'm at peace with with those things. I think not so much that they were meant to be. I did my best. I took as much time as I needed to scour my memories for the piece about my father, the essay about my father. I, I took thirty years to write it. I don't think that there's in the aftermath one thing that I have thought of about my father that, that I did not either put into the uh, to the memoir about him or decide not to put in about Mm. it. So there's nothing floating around that I wish I'd said. I was completely expressed by what I wrote.
2: Well, let me put it um, a different way. Did you learn anything by writing this memoir? Presumably, you have a greater understanding or a greater insight or compassion to the different challenges that both your parents faced. Well, whether it was when you were a child or then after you went to university when your mom was, it was just yourself and your mom?
1: I don't think I, Susan, have a greater understanding. I have a well compiled understanding mm. now. Mm. The chronicle that I have written about my parents is as useful for me as almost any book that I've ever written because it allowed me to draw the memories of my parents into one place. It allowed me, at least virtually, to draw them two together. Mm into my presence for the time I was writing. And any time I want to access their lives again, I don't have to rely upon my disintegrating memory. I can just look in the book and there they are. But it wasn't a greater understanding. I think I think the the greater affection that was ultimately expressed was simply the, the affection that caused me to write it at all.
2: I might get you to do another reading. Would sure. that be okay? Mm-hmm. Where would you like to read from?
1: Um... <clears throat> I'll read just right from the beginning of the passage about my father, because it was the first thing I wrote. Somewhere deep in my childhood, my father is coming home off the road on a Friday night. He is a traveling salesman. It is 1951 or 52. He's carrying with him lumpy white butcher paper packages full of boiled shrimp or tamales or oysters by the pint he's brought up from Louisiana. The shrimp and tamales steam up hot and damp off the slick papers when he opens them out. Lights in our small duplex on Congress Street in Jackson are switched on bright. My father... Parker Ford, a large man, soft, heavy-seeming, smiling widely as if he knew a funny joke. He is excited to be home. He sniffs with pleasure. His blue eyes sparkle. My mother is standing beside him, relieved he's back. She is buoyant, happy. He spreads the packages out onto the metal kitchen tabletop for us to see before we eat. It is as festive as life can possibly be. My father is home again hour. My and my mother's week has anticipated this arrival. Edna, will you? Edna, did you, son, son, son? I am in the middle of everything, normal life between his Monday leavings and the Friday nights when he comes back, normal life is the interstitial time, a time he doesn't need to know about and that my mother saves him from. If something bad has happened, if she and I have had a row, always possible. If I have had trouble in school, also possible. This news will be covered over, manicured for his peace of mind. I don't remember my mother ever saying, I'll have to tell your father about this, or wait till your father comes home, or your father will not like that. He confers, they confer, the administration of the week's events, including my supervision, onto her. If he doesn't have to hear it when he's home, ebullient and smiling with packages, it can be assumed nothing so bad has gone on, which is true, and to that extent is fine with me.
2: Your mother was unbelievably resilient in how she began to resume what possibly was not a very normal life for her, but what became a normal life. She got a job. um, She made lots of different new friends and she became more involved in the community. You mentioned how she began to take different holidays and so on. It's incredibly noble how she went about building an independent life, considering that when she met Your dad, she was 17, and they were so committed to each other.
1: That's right, and I feel the same way, as you just described. I I thought, given the the depths and the complexities and the completeness of their affection for each other, how she conducted life after he departed uh, was remarkable. I mean, it wasn't the way I wanted it to be, I, I, as her only son, wanted her to fall in love again and get married, and you know, commence a new life. And it was just, it was just not on. She just wasn't going to do that, and, and not because, in a way, she didn't want to. I think if she'd fallen in love again, she would have, but she didn't. And what I think she came to understand was, she didn't because she was in love with him. Mm. That was the only mm. union she was ever going to really fully consume.
2: So pay tribute to his memory, if you will.
1: I suppose so. And to their love. And to their love. And to her own, which she was, I guess, almost prideful of, her own, you said the word Mm -hmm. resilience, her own dignity, Mm -hmm. her own sense of committedness, her own disciplines. She cared a lot about those things. It's It's a part of her growing up life with the nuns that I think suited her very well.
2: She encouraged you to build your own life, and she seems to have given you a lot of space within your own marriage, and encouraged you to um, make decisions on your own terms to a degree, and that you know she didn't want to burden you in any way.
1: She, she, I think, saw that that I was generationally very different from her, but I, mean, I was, you know, eighteen in nineteen sixty-two. I think she saw that. Times were coming in which my life was going to be nothing like her life had been. I mean, she was born in 1910 in a two-room house that didn't have a floor in western Arkansas. And we were living in the suburbs, and we had some dough, and we had a car. We had, we had a nice life in a way. And... So I think she just thought, well, you know, Richard's going to go off and live a life I don't really understand. She, she'd never been on a university campus before. She, she didn't know anything about my wife who ha, who has a Ph.D. in economics. She, she didn't know anything about this. So I think she just wisely and I think respectfully, you know, stood back. We don't have any children. I never, she never once said to me, oh, am I never going to have any grandchildren? She never said that to me. She never asked me anything pertinent other than to, 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 you know, to say, can I help you about my life at all?
2: You write very movingly um, about it was in November before your mum died and she was staying with you. I think you were working in in Princeton at the time. And she told you that she wasn't coping too well and that she she didn't feel that she, she what was it was possible for her possibly to live on her own anymore and she didn't feel up to it. And you spoke about whether she should move up with you or stay uh, longer. And you said, look, mum, um, when the time comes, just tell me and you're welcome and so on. And then you pulled back slightly. And um, when she mentioned about moving furniture up or sorting out furniture, it's an unbelievable, um, it's an unbelievable passage in the memoir. And we all have regrets with our parents one's alive and dead yes. and we all have said things that we've regretted no, no relationship is perfect you know one person is is perfect does that keep um pressing on you
1: no um but i don't i don't forget it either mm. what my mother said to me when i said well if you don't feel you can handle your own affairs you can move up with us with christina and me and she's and her eyes kind of lightened and She said, okay. She said, all right. I think she could see a pathway forward then. She said, then I'll just start making preparations to move up with you. And just on the spur of that moment, I said, well, I said, don't don't make that decision quite yet. And to this day, I don't know if it was that I thought, well, you might get better, because I'm optimistic about things like that, or if I thought, no, you're not going to be alive much longer. I don't know which it was. But when I said it, whichever it was, and I think maybe she thought it was the latter, the the light in her eyes kind of disappeared. And I saw that something she was beginning to accept had inched a little closer to her. And um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that.
2: There was something very curious in the memoir, and I have to ask you about it. Uh, I hope it's not too uncomfortable a question to ask.
1: There's nothing that you could ask me about in this memoir that would be uncomfortable. Uh,
2: you weren't with your mum when she died. Your mum's um, health uh, deteriorated rapidly, and a nurse called to tell you that she died. And you write that you took it for granted that she was dead. You didn't, um, you know, you didn't uh, see it for yourself, so to speak. I, found, right. I find I find that really interesting
1: would you have done different would you have required to see your mother's corpse
2: i think so yeah
1: well i would not okay and i um, think they were capable of declaring her dead in the last i was with her yeah. all through the last weeks of her 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 life but i was in little rock hmm. we were just sleeping in her apartment and hmm. she was in the in, in intensive care unit and i saw her the the, the afternoon of the night in which she died and I saw her be alive, and when she was no longer alive, I'm not a Christian. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't believe in a life after death. Although she may have, mm-hmm. um, I, I thought I didn't need to see her dead yeah. because I had seen my father dead. Yeah, and I didn't like seeing my father dead a bit. And it's, and it's not that I think that seeing people who are dead is lurid or mm-hmm. seeing people who are dead is is is, is somehow another marking. I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to remember her being alive.
2: Do you believe in closure, that we can I, let I go? I believe
1: there is a word called closure. You know, there's a, there's a line of Penelope Fitzgerald's, um, which Hermione Lee quotes in her wonderful biography of Penelope Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald says, Experience is not given to us to be got over. And that's my view.
2: It's an interesting point, isn't it?
1: That is not it Yeah, it is.
2: Last question for you, uh, Richard. What is your hope with this memoir? What are you hoping the reader to do with this? What questions are what do you ultimately want the reader to experience and, and possibly um, understand and within, and reflect on in their own lives? Because you're putting a lot of questions out to the reader. Anyone who who reads this um, memoir will um, ask a lot of themselves and my their wish, own relationships.
1: I wish Susan is that you read all the words. If you read all the words, you, you, you'll, you'll be in a position to ask and to answer any pertinent questions that the book contains. I mean, If I've been a good writer and I've done my best, I will make that possible without having to cue you to what the answers are. You'll know what the important questions are, and you'll answer them well enough for yourself.
2: Excellent. Very determined. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm nothing if not that. <laughs> American novelist, short story writer and teacher Richard Ford who had the pleasure of talking with at this year's International Literature Festival Dublin Between Them, it's published by Bloomsbury and retails for just under 16 euros in hardback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a very big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with the candid but thoughtful words of Richard Ford from Between Them. The Memorist is never just the teller of other people's stories, but is a character in those stories. So, to write about my parents long after they've gone inevitably discloses hollow places, failures, frailties, rents and absences in me, insufficiencies that the telling itself may have tried to put right, or seal off but may only have reopened and left behind absences that no amount of life or truthful telling can completely fill or conceal these I agree to live with. Though when I turn to regard my life, my own and others, I now never fail to be struck amid the onslaught of all that's happened and still is happening by how much that's gone from me. Absences seem to surround and intrude upon everything. Though in acknowledging this, I cannot let it be a loss or even a fact I regret, since that is merely how life is, another enduring truth we must notice. Courageous words indeed. Good night.
0: Six to one aways.